I was gone last week, and I'm thankful for Ryan, who did a great job. Uh, but we're going to uh, continue uh, I Quit this morning and finish it up today. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to Acts chapter 12 with me? Or if you have a smartphone or a tablet, would you turn to Acts chapter 12? If you don't know a Bible or you don't have one of those, there's a Bible in front of you. Get it out. We'd love for you to use it. And if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. It'd be our gift to you. Also, if you want to get out your, our listening guide as well, you can kind of hold that in hand with your Bible and follow along and learn as we do a Bible study together. I was gone last week and we were traveling home and we were navigating through heavy traffic. Oh, yay, traffic, right? And so we're navigating through it. And I know that Google Maps is accessible and probably maybe the best way to navigate. After all, Google Maps is utilizing um, satellites in orbit around our planet to make sure that to monitor the 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 traffic patterns and the roads that are congested and not congested and the and the algorithms taking place but I decided that I would fight all that and I'd do it on my own and my wife in her loving way was kind of like well why don't we use Google Maps I'm like no I don't need Google Maps I can do it on my own I got this and, uh, you know, you don't really mind, I don't really mind myself doing that. But then when my kids do it, that really annoys me. It really bothers me. She, one of my daughters will come in and be like, hey, Daddy, can you help me with this? I'll be like, sure, I'll, I'll sit down with them or I'll help them do that. And then like 10 seconds later, they're like, I got this. I'm like, okay, fine. And then like a minute later, they discover they do not have it. And they say, hey, Daddy, can you help me? I'm like, no, 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 no. After all, you said you have this. And, and really, it's, it's my attempt, it's their attempt to say, look, I got control over this thing. I know what I'm doing. I don't need help. I don't need guidance. I'm on my own. I'm going to fight anybody who says otherwise. Now, how many of you have seen this with your children? If you have kids, how many of you have seen your kids, show of hands, uh, do this before? Yeah. How many of you have seen your spouse do this? Right? No, don't, don't raise your hand, okay? That's a long car ride home. All right, just... All right. But we want to prove our independence. We want to prove our control of the situation. Now, you, you, you probably know somebody that's a lot like that. And you would even call them a control freak, wouldn't you? Like they, they're crazy. They like to control the situation and they, they want to, they, they'll fight any kind of help along the way. But here's a question for all of us. Are you a control freak? Here's a question for you. Are you that person? Now, to help you understand if you're that person, no elbowing, okay? Let's just everybody take this, this together, all right? I'm going to give you several pictures just in a second. And maybe if you find yourself in one of those, you just may be fighting control, okay? So the first one is a picture. If you hit this button a lot in the elevator, continually, you're just over and over and over, you may battle with control, okay? If you battle for the radio or for the remote like this, you may be a control freak. If your dog has never been off its leash, you may be a control freak. Or your kids have never been off their leash, you may be a control freak. See, when you, when you boil it all down, if, if you have your listening guide, we like certainty over uncertainty, don't we? We like being powerful over vulnerable, 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being powerful and strength, any of that. But we certainly like control over being vulnerable and weak. And let me just tell you, we all are vulnerable. We all are weak in our life and exposed. And l- let me tell you, that puts us at odds. But we will fight to the death to white-knuckle it along the way to be on top and to be in control. And the problem with all of this is we take the fight to God. And when we take the fight to God, we step into this realm of sheer stupidity. Because fighting God is a completely useless battle. And we do it all the time. We fight God when it comes to his word. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what do we do? We don't love him at all. And he says the second commandment, he says, love your neighbor just as yourself. Oh, what would our life and our, and our world be different if man, we just simply did this? We would have no race issues. We would have no um, discord. There'd be peace, but we fight him tooth and nail. We fight his standards and we settle for worry and anxiety and we settle for complaining and so many other things. We fight God's leading in our life. God says yes and we say no and then God says no and then we say yes. We fight him tooth and nail almost with our fists raised to the sky saying I got this. But here's the problem. When we fight God no matter whether we're a believer here today, whether you're a Christ follower, whether you're somebody who count yourself into the kingdom of God, or you're on the other side of the equation and you know, you, you're a skeptic. You, you, you were brought here today by someone. It's been a long time since you were actually in, like darkened the doors of a church or you're new to this whole thing. Or maybe you're kind of on the middle. You're kind of weighing things out. It doesn't matter where you are in the scale of things. This impacts your life. When you fight God, it leads to a life of severe consequences. It leads to a life of searching for meaning. It leads to a life of complaining, filled with worry, anxiety, and emptiness. And ultimately, it leads to a life apart from God eternally. And the Bible calls this hell. And fighting God, it's not a 2017 thing, okay? This is not an American thing. This is a since the world has been created thing. See, the war against God created and started when Satan decided... I'm going to fight God. I got this. And he begins to fight God. And even though maybe he feels and seems like he's won a few small battles, God is winning that war and he's winning the overall war. But the trick was that Satan tricked mankind into fighting God as well. And he began to trick mankind and he has tricked the most powerful people on the planet as well. The leaders of empires, time in and time out to fight God and it's been completely peril and futile every single time. If you look back with me, uh, even thinking about Scripture in the Book of Exodus, you have Pharaoh. He loses his empire, he loses his fortune, and he loses, unfortunately, his son. If you look at First and Second Kings, you see over and over and over and over again these king after king after king after king fight God and lose. One, one in particular, King Zedekiah, he ends up being carried away in chains. So much, in fact. And then in recent years, we see the likes of Hitler and we see the likes of Al-Qaeda, both in the account that God with the K-O, not the T-K-O, but the K-O. You have the, the created ones fighting the creator. This is crazy. 
It's stupidity. But we do it. Empires have fought him, and yet those leaders' bones lay in the ground today, and yet God continues to live and continues to reign. So as we look at Acts chapter 12 together, we're going to learn about a man who is fighting God. We're also going to learn about his family a little bit. The, the family patriarch was Herod the Great. We learn about him. He's married over 10 times. He has multiple children. And one of his children is Herod, who we're going to learn, in, learn about in Acts chapter 12. A little bit about Herod. Herod is uh, completely and utterly about himself. He's not really much a king at all. He's more of just a kind of just somebody who wants to get all that he can. He's going to do anything that he can to take from all that he can. He doesn't care about the Jews, even though he's the king of the Jews. And he's just being, he's trying to be promoted by Rome. He's more of a puppet. And it's all about his control. It's all about his plan. He is the ultimate control freak. And so there's pressure to control the situation. But then on top of that, if you read back in Acts chapter 11, they're in the middle of a famine. And then on top of that, He's dealing with this movement called Christianity. His uncle had tried to stamp out Jesus. And now he's trying to stamp out the disciples of Jesus. And he's fighting God. Let's look together in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So despite fighting God through persecution, Luke, he records transformation after transformation of life. As we recall in our preaching series over the last several months as we've been in the book of Luke, we saw the 3,000, their lives transformed through the gospel. The first megachurch hits the scene. And then, then we see the likes of Saul, who would become Paul, and the Ethiopian, and the, the Gentile centurion, whose name was Cornelius. <clears throat> and even though that there was the execution of Stephen, you saw Maybe two million people in just a few years become Christ followers in the life of the early church. Then in verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now the Talmud, the, the very thing that the Jews follow, had, had stated that if there was a person that followed anyone but God should be put to death. So based on the Talmud, they would have been very pleased with Herod's actions. Verse 3, when he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So he's not concerned about justice. He's concerned about himself and about the headlines. And he begins to posture himself for even greater impact. He goes, okay, the execution of James, the beloved disciple of Jesus, went well. So now my crosshairs are on Peter. It's like he's fighting God with his clenched fist in the sky. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So right after this large Jewish Passover, not on the Passover, but just right after. Herod's going to take this time. He's going <clears> to <throat> seize while the crowds are very swollen. And he's going to leverage this. He devises this plan. Hey, I'm going to put a, trubic, a, a public trial together for Peter, just like uh, they did for Jesus. And I'm going to try him, and then I'm going to execute him. And, and he's going to try to quench the movement of Christianity. So what he does is he puts 16 soldiers around him with multiple 
rounds of security. And the plan was that this would be airtight and that Herod would get what he wanted. But the thing is, is that this is just pure stupidity. Herod is like an ant on a railroad track, holding his arms in the sky with the train coming and God is the train. And the problem with fighting God is that he fights back. And if you look back over the course of history, no man, no woman, no person has ever fought God and ever won. So verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So the Jerusalem church knew exactly what to do here. They had remembered the angel setting Peter free. And Luke, he uses the word earnestly. It's the word ektenos. And ektenos is a medical term. And it has to do with stretching your muscles in such a way to their fullest capacity. These aren't lazy prayers. This isn't just a an evening, an evening before the meal, hey God, would you help with this and just kind of go on your merry way. This is <clears throat> earnestly seeking out and stretching every single prayer muscle that you have. This is what the Christ followers were doing. And then in verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So typically a prisoner would, would be chained to one guard. But here, Peter, he's probably chained to two guards. The chance of him escaping was almost zero. I mean, the chance of him getting out, nada. And the chance of him seeing trial probably the next morning and, 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 the, and his death was probably almost 100%. But when you read this, Luke has nothing to say about the fact that Herod being ex, uh, fearful or worried or anxious at all. Because Peter, he's not fearing, he's not fighting God. I, I read uh, recently that, that, that a dense fog can stretch over seven blocks of a city. It can be a hundred feet deep. And it all can come from 60 billion droplets of water, all composed in one glass of water. That a city can be brought to its knees with a couple of gallons of water covering its territory. See, in many ways, this perfectly illustrates how the substance of worry, anxiety, and fear can cripple anyone's life. A believer's life or an unbeliever's life. It can completely shut them down. And that's why one man quotes and said this, Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Here Peter is sound asleep. Did you know that in our country 2016, we spent 41 billion dollars in sleeping pills? 41 billion. And yet we probably sleep yet less and we're so depressed as a nation at times. So in the midst of impossible circumstances, there is a possibility to under and understand and know contentment and to be unafraid. And it really reminds me of, of David in Psalm chapter 3 verse 5. When he's being chased down and hunted by his own crazy son Absalom. He writes this, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I read this the other day. There is no softer pillow than the sovereignty of God. The fight, fighting God only brings worry. Fighting God only brings anxiety. 
And, 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 and Peter and James, they knew this. And, and so they also knew they, to fight God was futile and they found peace. And look at it with me in verse 7. It says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Typically they had an inner cloak and an outer cloak. And one of them was set aside and now he's kind of girding up and putting everything on. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He's thinking he's dreaming. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him and Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying for him. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. There's a house and there's a courtyard. He's standing in the street. It's in the middle of the night and he's rapping on the door. As he's knocking on the door, a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the front door. And look how they respond. Verse 15, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. So this group, man, they, they must have been scared out of their mind. The secret police was probably hunting them down. They didn't want to go to the door. They probably drew straws and who would do it. And Rhoda picked the shortest straw. And so she has to go to the door. And Jews back then, they, 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 they had this idea that there was this guardian angel. And the guardian angel would appear for the person at times. So they're thinking, well, maybe it's his guardian angel. This is where we get some of the theology around where we understand guardian angels to come from and understand through. But what is so hilarious and ironic is here you have these individuals being stretched to the max, praying before God, and God has miraculously, supernaturally answered their prayer, and they're going, eh, he probably can't do it. And I just think, man, I, I do this so very often. Then verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. I don't know how, if this is how it went, but this is how I thought it went. He's knocking on the door and they open it. Peter! It's Peter, everybody! He's like, like, like lights are coming on and dogs are starting to bark. He's like, let me in! And then he tells about the supernatural working of God. He says, tell James and other believers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Then we have a scene change. And it's the morning now. Verse 18. And there was a small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Now, have you ever lost something that was very close and dear to you? I don't know, a cell phone, a wallet, a set of key car keys, something that meant a lot to you? This was even more so for the soldiers, because they knew Herod. 
I was uh, watching this one comedian, one of my favorite comedians, and he was talking about one day he's out in public, and he notices this little small child that's holding onto this helium balloon, and they lose the grip of the balloon, and the balloon floats away, and the little child responds and goes, hey, my balloon, like that. And the parent kind of says, well, I'll be quiet. We'll get you another one. And, you know, the comedian's like, man, folks, like, why don't you, why don't you calm down? Why don't you be nice? Like, and he kind of puts it into an adult perspective, like, what if all of a sudden your wallet just started f- floating away, or your, your cell phone just started flowing away, or whatever the case is, and, and someone's like, oh, be quiet, we'll get you another one. He's like, no, 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 I want that one right there. This is the soldiers, okay? This is how they feel in this moment. Verse 19, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. And Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So now he's cow-tailed. He's fought God brutally and he's lost completely. And he escapes the area, hoping to avoid the crowds, to placate to Caesar, to get out from the cameras and the lights and to escape the situation. Verse 20, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not of a man. Verse 23, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. An historian named Josephus, he actually makes a, a very vivid account of all of this that happened, Herod's death and what took place. And he did say that Herod oftentimes would wear these robes made out of pure silver, yet his insides were literally being decayed. And he gives this detailed account that a severe pain arose in his belly. He was carried back to his palace where he would die. And this one doctor, Dr. Short, he's a professor of surgery at Bristol University. He writes his book, The Bible in Modern Day Medicine, about how, how many people experience harbor intestinal sickness. Where these areas, there will be this ball of intestinal worms formed. And it'll create such pain, and oftentimes it'll lead to someone's death. This was the death of Herod. And if you just recall, real quickly, Acts chapter 12, 1, all the way through where we are today. What a, what a reversal. And then it's just kind of emphasis on verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. What a, a reversal of times. A reversal of situations. You have Herod with his fist to God, fighting God. And then here in verse 24, he has come to an ultimate death. God with with the KO. You cannot, you will not defeat God. Almost like this, that at the beginning, Herod's like, I got this, God. And now God says, no, I got this. And what leaps from these words that we're just kind of learning today What leaps from the Bible and what leaps from all of creation, no matter who you are, no matter what story you've lived, is that we have got to quit fighting God. It's futile. 
Fighting God, it's like, it's like taking a bunch of eggs and trying to break a granite rock wall. Firing the eggs one by one, smashing them to no avail. That's the futility of fighting God. I, I have a really good friend, and he, he was very successful. He still is. And he tells the story about his, his life of futility. He shares about how he fought God in the existence of God. He used reason, psychology. Well, when finally all of that logic ended, then he fought the plan of God. He fought the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And then finally when the God had finally pursued him to the point where he could no longer fight any longer, he finally said, God, you got this. And it's the same for us. Did you know this? There's really two options for us. We can fight God like my friend. That's one option. We can hope for a different conclusion. And it's a daily battle for the believer and even the unbeliever. We can fight God along the way, hoping for a different conclusion. But as we see in Acts chapter 12, that, that his purposes cannot be thwarted. That his plan is never undone. Or we can say, God, you got this. God, you got this, so I relinquish my worry. God, you got this, so I relinquish my plan. God, you got this, so I relinquish my complaining. God, you got this, so I relinquish control. God, your standards are your standards. You got this. God, your, your word is your word. I will submit to it. And here's the thing. When we begin to surrender to this, Realizing that the very person that we are fighting in his character is completely undefeated for all of time. One of the, the, the effects of it is that we come to him in prayer. Humbly before God, we say, God, we, I've, wanted to, I've wanted to control. I've wanted to fight you. And now I'm at the point where, look, I would relinqu relinquish control. Knowing that I really can't do anything. But you, God, have got this. So what, what problem are you facing today? What rainy day report did you recently read? How have you reacted? Was it control freak mode? I got this, I got this, I got this. White knuckling it the whole way. Or was it completely, you got this, God. Health situation, it doesn't look good. God, you got this. A child, a friend, family member, a parent. Relational issue. God, you got this. An obstacle you face at work or in your life. God, you, you got this. The situations we see in our country. The hurricane that we see in Texas. The, the racist, racism that we, we, are, we face um, and, and we continue to see some of our own country divided. For, well, we say, God, you got this. You got this completely. We're not going to try to control it. Here's what I want to do. In the remaining moments, I just want you to go back to verse 5 in chapter 12 real quickly. Would you look at it with me? Acts chapter 12, verse 5. And, and I'd love for all of us to read it out together. And we'll all one chord. Let's just read it. Ready? So Peter was kept in prison... But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Okay, I, I want you to circle, to highlight, maybe to even take notes in your listening guide quickly. There's one particular word 
that I want you to take note of. And then there's another particular word that I want you to take note of. And the, and the first word that I want you to take note of is the word so. So, he was in prison. And the reason why I want you to take note of that is there's always so's in our life. So, so-and-so said this. So, this happened. So, this obstacle was put in front of me. So, this sickness hit my life, blindsided me. So, this accident took place. So, I just got the pink slip. So, you fill in the blank. There's always going to be so's in our life. Are we all on the same page? Would you all agree? There always are going to be so's in our life. And when there are so's in our life, there's always a but. So this took place in my life, but I freaked out. I white knuckled it. I tried to control the situation. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. Or are you going to say, so this happened, but I prayed. I prayed. And that's exactly what you see the early church do. Because they can't fight God. They can't fight his purposes. They can't fight his plan. So they're going to join in with God. And they're going to say, so he's in prison. So this is in front of me. This is what I'm facing. But I'm going to pray. What situation, what so situation is in your life? And what needs to follow the but in your now you may say, Ray, look, I've prayed before, I've tried it, and zero. I got nothing. All I saw was just emptiness and void. Oh, let me tell you a quick story that reminds me of that. Uh, I recently went fishing with a, a, good, a good buddy of mine on Lake Monroe. And we got up real early in the morning. We got there right as the sun came up. Beautiful, great morning, perfect temperature. And the second cast of the day, my friend caught a seven-pound bass huge fish. I wish I had the picture. It was like, no, it really was big, but seven pounds. You know, the, the good news was that we caught 10 keepers, tournament size keepers. And the bad news is I caught zero of them. I didn't even get a bite. And the point is we have to keep fishing. The point is we have to quit fighting God, but we should never quit praying to him. For an intervention in our life and that he hears our every single solitary prayer. In, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' ministry, he's teaching the disciples what it looks like to follow God. And if you want to read it this week, Luke chapter 11, if you want to make, make that your study because of what God is doing in your life, I'd love for you to do it. In Luke chapter 11, he teaches them how to pray. He says, you know, this is how you want to pray. And I want you to know that, that when you come to your heavenly father, that you with urgency and petition can come to him and he hears every single solitary. And Jesus also said, look, he knows the hairs on your head, whether they're 12, okay, or 12,000, doesn't matter. He knows the hairs on your head, every single one of them. He's counted them. He's got the details all worked out. And, and so we learn a couple of things about prayer. First one we learn here in, in Acts chapter 12 is encountering problems should always activate prayer to God. Encountering problems should always activate prayer to God. When you encounter a problem, where do you go? 
What's the first thing that pops in your head? Call so-and-so, go to this place, do this. Does it activate prayer? See, when, when you understand the power of prayer, it will cause you to lean into prayer even more often. The fact that you can go to the very one, pray to the very arm that moves the universe, friends. That you can sleep at night even when you've been seized all day by so much stress and so much grief or whatever the case is. You can experience this kind of presence by God. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And I, I love what Alan Redpath said this, Keep your chin up and your knees down. We're on the victory side. I love that. And so here's what I would love for you to, to hear this morning. Would you offer up prayers in the a.m. and would you offer up prayers in the p.m.? Petitioning God week in and week out, day after day, night after night, minute by minute. The second thing we learn is that when they didn't know how it would happen, they prayed, God, make it happen. When they didn't know what was going to happen, they said, God, would you make this happen for your mission, for your sake, for the movement of, the, of Christianity to come, move forward? John Piper, he said it this way, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission for the church as it advances against the power of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. That prayer precedes the move of God. And as we've looked through Acts, we've seen over and over again that when the people pray, the church prevails. Don't mess with a church that is praying on their knees. You know, I couldn't help but recall a visual in my mind this last week as I was thinking about this chapter. When I was in college, I visited New York City several times. I had some good friends in, in the Cherry Hill, New Jersey area. So we went to New York City several times, I think five or six times. And we had a good time getting to know the city a little bit. And I think it's on Fifth Avenue. There's this big statue of Atlas. And I don't know if you remember who Atlas is, but he's this big, strong guy. And he's got the entire world on his back. And you can just see a little bit of a grimace by carrying the burden that he is carrying. And it's almost like he can barely hold it up. And he's kind of crumbling under the pressure of it all, even though he's strong and everything else. But then in contrast, on the other side of the road, there's this cathedral. And you go through its doors and you walk down to the altar. And what you see is the little boy Jesus holding the world. Almost to say, I got this. 